Happy Monday, everybody. This is Alan Arnett with another episode podcast on the blog on alanarnett.com. It is Monday, July 12th, 2021. And today we're going to talk about what's happening in the Karakoram in the Northern Territories of Pakistan, the uh, big 8,000 meters uh, mountains of uh, Nanga Parbat, uh, Gasher Baram 1 and 2, Broad Peak, and of course, K2. So let's start with some big news over the weekend. There were summits, uh, the first 8,000-meter summits of the season by uh, a team of four French climbers who got to the top of Broad Peak, and then they skied back down. It's been done before, but these guys went all the way back down to Camp 1, um, where it meets the uh, route going over to uh, G2, I'm sorry, G1. So quite an accomplishment for these guys, uh, very impressive, and congratulations. I'm sure they are celebrating uh, back in base camp before they make that long trek back uh, to Ascoli. So well done, guys. Well done. Uh, let's see. Over on Nanga, uh, the Spanish team, uh, they, they posted a video on uh, Facebook. Um, you know, it's all in Spanish. And sadly, I don't speak Spanish. Uh, I barely speak English, as most of you know. And so uh, they uh, they uh, looks like they're having a great time. The conditions are really good. They're uh, attempting not the normal route, but the, the Darmar face, one that Reinhold Messner made famous back in his heyday. So uh, it looks like they're doing well. And uh, obviously, we wish them the best. Uh, speaking about Broad Peak a little bit more, um, you know, not only did we um, got progress going on there, but the ropes are up to Camp 3. And then uh, uh, Stephen Keck, uh, <laughs> one of the uh, uh, foreign guides with uh, Karakoram Expeditions, and uh, he's helping to lead the rope fixing teams both on uh, Broad Peak on K2. Uh, he just did, he posted an amazing picture on Instagram, which I've also got on my blog, of him paragliding off of Broad Peak from around, let's see, what was it, 6,600 6, meters. It, I'm, I, it's a beautiful picture, just stunning what these guys are doing. Just uh, just absolutely amazing. You know, uh, it's not unusual to see people uh, paraglide off of these, uh, big, these big peaks, but whenever they do, it's always just a, an incredible shot, just amazing. So back over on K2, uh, probably for me, one of the most exciting news is that we got this uh, over the last couple of days is I got a direct message from uh, Graham Zimmerman. Uh, he's up there with Canadian Ian Westland, and uh, they're attempting the West Ridge on K2. So not the normal route that we're seeing everybody else on, maybe 80 people on the Abruzzi, but they're on the West Ridge. It's never been climbed completely. We've had several people that have gotten almost to the top, but the last two or 300 meters, they veered off. And as I went through an interview, a couple of, well, actually it was last month now with uh, Graham, right before he left the U.S., he talked about how they may get to that same point and go, oh, okay, now we understand why they didn't go ahead and complete it. Uh, but anyway, they are, they've now acclimatized over on Broad Peak to 7,000 meters. So, uh, you know, really well done by then. I think this is an incredibly smart move. As I've talked about before and written a lot about, a lot of people talk about acclimatizing on Broad Peak and then going back over to K2 to try to do the summit. Well, what they did, I think is really smart. They didn't try to go all the way to the summit and, you know, basically exhaust themselves. Instead, they got to 7,000 meters, and then they went back over to their camp, which is separate from the main base, uh, K2 base camp. And so hopefully they'll be able to head up in the next uh, several days. This is, like I said, June 12th, and it looks like there may be some high winds for the next couple of days. According to uh, Mark de Kieser um, uh, from Belgium, he sent me a, a message and said, the weather looks good tomorrow, but changes start on the 12th from the 13th, with winds blowing out of limits for quite a few days, just in time for my team 
waiting to return from their first rotation good timing. So what Mark is saying there is that the winds are going to pick up out of limits. Typically, that's over 30 miles an hour. Occasionally, you can find people that will go to 35. But above that, you begin to risk frostbite. And we talked extensively about that during the Everest season. And K2 is, you know, just as bad. I mean, anytime you're at altitude, uh, you've got uh, temperatures at minus 20, minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit in uh, 20, 30, 40 mile an hour winds. The risk of frostbite just goes through the roof. So that's what they have to be careful of. So my suspicion is that we're going to see most people hunkering down here for the next few days across the Karakoram, because if it's going to hit K2, it's probably going to hit the other peaks as well. Um, now, that doesn't always happen, as I've talked about. It's a fairly wide range, especially Wonanga is, you know, like 100 miles uh, away from uh, K2, uh, the Gasher, Brahms, and Broad. Uh, but uh, those uh, four, the Gs and Broad and K2, they typically get hit by the same weather. Occasionally, you'll have K2 getting hit by something really bad, big winds, and Broad not. Uh, but that's the exception, not the rule. So I really think that it's going to be kind of quiet over the next several days. That said, um, as I look at all the people, and I've got a message from uh, Garrett Madison, he sent me a text from K2 uh, Camp 2, saying that the conditions were great, they were having a good time, the weather was good, so they've now acclimatized up to Camp 2, and they've already returned back down to Broad Peak, I'm sorry, K2 Base Camp. Um, my suspicion is they're going to wait out these winds, and it wouldn't surprise me to see them heading up for their summit bid at the end of the week, so that would be, you know, what is that, July 16th, 17th, 18th? We might see some it's coming up this next week weekend on K2 is early. Normally, K2 sees summits towards the end of the uh, end of July and perhaps even into early August. So if they did summit uh, around July 20th or you know something like that, um, you know they're going to take it. Look, if the weather window opens up, they're going to jump right through it. They're not going to, you know, calendar be damned. <laughs> they're going to go for the summit if they get the opportunity because the shorter they can make the expedition, uh, you know, the more healthy they're going to be and um, get back home and, you know, get off that big old dangerous mountain with all that uh, rock fall and avalanche danger and everything else. Hey, speaking of that, I uh, have been communicating with um, uh, a British guy, John Gupta, and uh, John, J-O-N-G-U-P-T-A. I've got links and a quote on my uh, blog about him, but uh, look him up, especially go to his Instagram account. He has a great video of, um, of them taking their last steps on Everest this past May, a couple of months ago. It's really a nice video. It shows the you know, final steps up to the top. I've got a similar one, and I look at it occasionally. It just brings back great memories. But this is the first time that John uh, has been to the Karakoram in Pakistan. And to say the least, uh, to use the good old Brit term, he is gobsmacked. Uh, he is just talking about it effusively, uh, just using all sorts of superlatives. He says, and I'll just read you a little bit of it, especially for the, uh, those of you listening on this uh, on the podcast or maybe on YouTube as well. But I've got this on my on the blog at alanarnett.com. So what John says is, quote, um, for the past five nights, we've been up on the mountain acclimatizing, spent nights at ABC, Camp 1 and 2. And here's my thoughts about the mountain. K2 oozes character, is big, omnipresent, full of personality, inconceivably steep from every angle. It stands out like a proud fortress, enticing you cautiously onto its slopes. Commanding its own rules, K2 weather has no boundaries. The regular afternoon storm clouds wrap themselves tightly around the impenetrable rock and ice bands high on the mountain, and the, nose, the noise of huge avalanches crash down the slopes above us. There is no rest 
bite on the bruisey spur. There's no time to switch off or unclip from the lines. It's quite simply steep everywhere. Our tents are perched precariously on the only vaguely habitable snow slope in over a thousand meters of vertical. From time to time, K2 pokes out from the clouds, showing off a glimpse of his proud triangular summit, so close yet so unfathomably far away. Yet today, under a calm, deep blue sky, K2 welcomed us with grace and warmth. Feeling at peace and entirely alone, we climbed silently through the ever-steepening rock and ice, pinched ourselves that we were fortunate enough to experience these magical moments. The Karakoram feels different to anywhere I've known. It's a vast, like the deepest oceans, yet so complete, like a sky full of stars. The silence resonates perfectly across the striking mountains that pierce the skyline in every direction. As far as I can see, most unclimbed. Tomorrow we descend and rest, enjoying the luxuries of base camp, being warmly looked after by Pakistani uh, base camp crew, proud of their work and never shy of a smile. These guys keep the cogs going round. Well said, John. Well said. You know, that just brings back such great memories for me. I mean, that is that is that is poetic. <laughs> yeah, let's just be honest about this. I love the way that that mountain climbers, um, you know, occasionally you'll read something from uh, Jake Norton or Conrad Anchor that uh, waxes poetically. I mean, you know, even old Messner occasionally, you know, gets the bug and says something along these lines. But it just, I mean, it really just brings out the emotion being on these high mountains. And I know exactly how John is feeling right now, because this is how I felt being up at, you know, Camp 2 and, and Camp 3, just looking at the whole area. Uh, it's just, it really is. Gobsmacked is a great word for it. I have no idea what that really means, but uh, <laughs> I think it it definitely is just awe inspiring. I'll say that as a uh, as a yank trying to translate gobsmacked, awe inspiring. How about that? Let's go with that. But uh, it's really uh, an amazing place. And let me kind of talk through what they're doing right now. They've gone from base camp, K2 base camp, to advanced base camp. It's only a couple of hours, maybe less walk uh, along the glacier. The glacier um, is, you know, does have crevasses, but if you're careful, you really don't walk uh, roped up. I'm going to be showing some pictures on the YouTube version of this podcast uh, as I talk this through. There is a small ice fall. It's maybe like 50 feet high, maybe, a, I don't know, maybe 75. It's not that high, but there's, there's fresh running water through it that you've got to navigate. And so if you slip and fall in the water, you know, game's over for that day. It's back to base camp to dry off, warm up, and, you know, try another day. Advanced base camp sits at the base of K2, and that's when climbing really begins. From uh, from advanced base camp, all you do is look straight up the snow slope at about 45 degrees, and you really don't see anything except for more snow. And you might see a smidge of rock depending upon, you know, if the clouds have cleared out, but that's where you're going to go. So typically people will spend a night at, at advanced base camp. Not always. A lot of times they'll go directly from uh, K2 base camp all the way to camp one and one push. That climb going from advanced base camp up to camp one is really where your eyes get opened. As John says, it's steep. I've always said this about K2. It starts steep, it's steep in the middle, 
and it ends deep. It never lets up. It's relentless. I totally agree with what John said. You know, as you're going up there, yes, very careful that you get into a rhythm. There is a fixed rope, uh, you know, the white nylon rope that you've got your Jumar hooked on to. You're climbing with your legs. You're not pulling on that rope. You know, the rope is there for safety. It's not to be used as a crutch. As you pull up, as you walk up, you, um, you know, go pretty slow, but you get into a rhythm and you're very mindful of your steps. Later on in the season, towards the end of July, this area can get really slushy, but right now in early July to mid-July, it's probably pretty hard packed, and most teams will start off pretty early in the morning, you know, probably before sunrise in order to make sure that that snow is hard packed and you can get good purchase with your crampons. You know, you do hit a rock band right below camp uh, one. Uh, it's not that difficult. You can, you know, you can navigate around it. I say it's not that difficult in inverted commas. How's that for my British followers, you know, uh, or in quotes, as Yanks would call it, that, you know, this rock is, at, you know, you're sitting there now at around 19,000 feet, you know, 19, 20,000 feet. So anything you're doing is uh, the degree of difficulty is exacerbated by the altitude. You know, you navigate the rocks, you kind of scramble around them, and eventually uh, you're going to find this last little kind of steep pitch up to Camp One. <laughs> camp One is another world entirely. You know, it's about the size of a postage stamp. <laughs> you can squeeze about eight tenths, just, you know, actually literally tied tent to tent. There's no space between the tent walls uh, at Camp One. I'm going to show a picture of that right now as well. Uh, but the views from up there are absolutely unbelievable. You're looking back down on the Goodwin Austin Glacier as well. Uh, you really, I don't remember if you can see camp, uh, base camp or not, but you definitely can from Camp Two. Uh, but if you look up uh, from there, which I'll show a picture of now, you can just again see the snow slope and you can see the rocks heading up to camp two. Going between uh, one and two, it's a little more dicey, more rock, less snow, uh, you know, but again, it's the same formula. You kind of go slowly, you follow you know, the fixed line, you follow the weakness in the rocks. You're very careful to clip in and out. Whenever you cross an anchor, you always double check everything. You undo your safety, you move it above the anchor, you undo your Jumar, then you move it above your safety, and then you head off again. You're always clip to the fixed rope. That's the absolute, you know, non-negotiable part of mountain climbing. You're, if you're on a rope, if you're on a mountain that has a fixed rope, use it. By God, use that rope because it's going to save your life. If you unclip, you're absolutely taking an unnecessary chance. So you're, you know, clipped into that fixed rope and you're moving up. And again, you're not pulling on the rope. You're climbing with your legs. You always climb with your legs, not with your arms uh, and not certainly pulling on that rope because you've got other people above you also depending upon that rope. And if you weight that rope, you're liable to, you know, give an unnecessary surprise to somebody above or below. Also, you got to be really careful about uh, rocks. Uh, K2 is notorious for objective danger, primarily rockfall, and everybody wears helmets, but, you know, and we've seen it many times in the past where rocks can come down and hit a helmet and completely break the helmet. My good friend Gary McDonald back in 2008, who sadly died um, a year later um, uh, on K2, uh, you know, he got hit in the head by uh, a rockfall and almost died from it. Uh, Kami Sherpa, you know, uh, my... <laughs> 
the commie who's uh, we've summited K2 and uh, other mountains together, Everest, uh, he got hit in the shoulder, dislocated his shoulder and really ripped him apart. So this rockfall is deadly and dangerous. It can it not only hurt you, but it can kill you. So one of the things that happens, though, is that climbers inadvertently kick the rock and it falls down the mountain. So it's a climber's responsibility to be mindful of their fellow climbers and not to kick those rocks. So as you start to you know go up uh, towards uh, K2, uh, Camp two, uh, it kind of flattens out and you get to a spot that some people will use as a camp and it's right below house chimney. And I'll show a picture of what house chimney looks like from that spot. And occasionally you'll see tents there because some people, you know, just get, can't be bothered to go up that last hundred feet to get up to the true camp two. Um, you know, true camp two is a little more, uh, uh, protected from the wind, but you do have to go up the chimney house chimney. My gosh, what fun going up house chimney. You know, first off, you approach it, there's this big ice bulge that's like, you know, it's like a big dining room table or, a, you know, a big um, frozen block of ice that you've got to navigate. And this sucker is, is just slick, slick, slick. And so you're, you know, you're pushing in with your crampons, trying to get purchased. You know, the fixed rope is there, and I'll be honest, I was holding on to the fixed rope of my Jumar for dear life, because I slipped and fell flat on my face the first time I crossed that, that ice bulge. <laughs> you know, we're talking about a rude awakening, and, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, what are you doing on this mountain? You can't even cross an ice block. But I got myself back up and went across and got to the base of uh, of the house chimney. And, um, and at that point you look up and it's pretty vertical. It's probably 70 degrees. So, you know, it's a pretty good steep angle. Uh, it's narrow about shoulder width. And there is an, a, uh, a big wall uh, um, rope ladder that's in there. But you know what? That thing is just flopping around. It's not anchored at the bottom. And the wind blows, the bottom comes up. So there are some fixed ropes in there, but they're just also dangling. So again, you know, you kind of take a bet and figure out which one is the safest one to, to put your Jumar on. You attach it, and then you start heading up. Well, there's an anchor about halfway up the house chimney. So you've got to somehow or another get up there and uh, cross that anchor. So you start off in your stemming, which means that you've got, you know, left leg out, right leg out, your crampons against the rock. You're trying to get, you know, crampons, the spike of your crampons onto the little, you know, little edges of the rock. So you're, you're literally rock climbing with crampons, which is very difficult. Um, and it's, and it's very aerobic. So by the time you get to the anchor, you know, you're, <laughs> I was puffing, I was huffing and puffing because you're at right at, uh, what is it at this point? 20,000 feet, something like that. And so you cross that anchor. And again, it's the same process that, you know, should be in your muscle memory for climbing K2. And that is you move your safety, you move your Jumar, and then you keep on going. You're always clipped into the fixed rope. You know, by this point, if you're really knackered, you may get a little Elvis leg, a little, you know, movement of the egg, leg moving back and forth, you know, but you keep on going because you can see the top of, um, of house chimney. And again, you continue stemming, you know, doing the rock climbing. Now you are using your hands. You're using your hands, you're using your feet, and you're moving along. You're not pulling on that rope to the best of your ability. You're moving that Jumar up in case you fall, the Jumar will engage and, and protect you from falling all the way down to the bottom of the, of the uh, chimney. You know, you get to the top, you kind of go over and my gosh, you stand up and you look back down and you realize what you've done, climbing house chimney. Uh, I got to tell you, at that moment, it was one of the happiest moments of my climbing life. Uh, I just, I, I just didn't, I never, 
ever imagined that, you know, this, this, this guy born on the banks of the Mississippi River in Memphis, Tennessee, would be climbing house chimney on K2, um, you know, at, at age 57. It was just amazing. Um, you know, I'm sure John and, and the rest of the team, Garrett and uh, uh, Saheed and all the guys that are climbing, uh, the guys from uh, Karakoram Expeditions, all those guys are just feeling the same way when they go through that section. It truly is a moment. It's a moment to be savored. And this is a lot of times what, when people don't understand why people climb is a moment like this, which is why you climb big mountains. You know, it's doing something that you never conceived that you would ever do. You do it. Yeah, it may not have been pretty, but you did it. And there's that enormous sense of satisfaction once you get across there. From there, it's a short little walk, ha, 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 up to Camp 2. It's, it's about a football field, about a soccer pitch to get up there. Um, and it's really steep. And you walk up and it's, oh, um, you, you walk into Camp 2 and there's all these shredded tents from previous expeditions. And sadly, uh, people don't take their tents down once they get shredded. Uh, that is a true problem. And I'm the first to uh, to say that's that you know that's not right. Uh, there are teams actually again this year that are going up on K two trying to clear out a lot of the old ropes and trying to clear out some of those sh uh, shredded tents. But what happens is that you know people they may go for their summit push and leave a tent pitched, or they you know actually should collapse it and, and weight it down with rocks so that it doesn't blow away. But in any event, uh, the tents will get shredded, uh, and sometimes even if they're collapsed with rocks on top of them, the winds are so strong it'll shred that nylon, that thin nylon. Nylon. But uh, get up there and uh, hopefully you can find a tent platform that was already uh, cut out. Uh, you know, that way you can save some energy. Otherwise, you know, you got to, you know, carve out the tent platform and make it as flat as possible and you uh, hunker in for the night. You know, the next step is to go up the Black Pyramid. I'll talk about that in the future podcast and get to Camp 3, where you have a stunning view of Broad Peak, just stunning. But there at uh, Camp 2, I'm going to show this picture of a, um, I'm not sure what kind of a bird it was, a goric, a crow, I don't know, but a big old black bird was, you know, up there you know, riding the winds. And it's just amazing how these birds fly up and down these mountains. You know, they've learned that uh, there's food where there are humans, there are food, and so they're up there kind of scavenging so you got to be really careful to keep a clean a clean camp and not leave anything around so the birds don't don't come but it does it does happen all right so that's it for today uh i'll do another podcast as uh news develops um again i'm looking for us to see a um, uh summits later on this week if the but if the winds move in uh it may be two more weeks that's the nature of climbing k2 all right that's it climb on this is alan and remember Memories are everything.